who was Van Dyke's ideal partnership. I could say, well, really, anybody, it, it, it doesn't really matter. Such are his qualities. Like, Ward, it's different. He's dependent on the qualities of the players around Subscribe him. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. You are very welcome along to the Sunday pay-per-view here on Off The Ball. Plenty for us to talk about over the next hour or so. It's a big day in rugby. Ireland are taking on Italy, where potentially the Italian team could take their 100th defeat in the Six Nations. We'll have plenty of updates on the game uh, later at the Aviva Stadium. We'll be taking a look at a lot of the build-up, including an interview with one of Ireland's newest stars in wing, Mac Hansen, who's already got a try and an assist in the first two games in the Six Nations. But plenty to look at across the back pages today. Uh, we start with the back of the Sunday Times, where Roman Abramovich is going to feature quite prominently at the time that Russia have invaded Ukraine this weekend and Chelsea have been put into a charitable trust. Uh, so basically Roman Abramovich's shares within Chelsea are now pretty much untouchable by the UK government if they decide to go after former Russian oligarchs and potentially freeze their assets. At this stage, Chelsea have been moved away from the personal pot of Roman Abramovich. Also, pressure builds on Russia for boycott is the story by Jonathan Norcroft on the bottom of the back page of the Sunday Times today. Uh, this follows on from Robert Lewandowski's comments yesterday where Poland say they're unwilling to play against Russia in their upcoming uh, World Cup qualifiers because of the situation in Ukraine and the potential uh, from perhaps more Baltic states uh, coming under pressure from Russia as well. Uh, struggling lead set to sack Bielsa was a story which was on the back page of the Sunday Times ahead of today. We know that Marcelo Bielsa has now been let go by Leeds. Uh, they're in a fairly perilous position just above the Premier League's drop zone. They've conceded 24 goals over the last week and a bit and they were hammered again by Tottenham Hotspur by four goals to nil yesterday. Eamon Sweeney on the back of the Sunday Independent has got a similar theme as well big sport on the side of bullies one of the stories that we're going to be covering in a few moments time with Keen Tracy and Brendan O'Brien uh, that story is looking at a combination of sports washing and also the benefit that there is for regimes to host major sporting events and there's a timeline uh, across some of the other stories today including David Walsh's piece in the Sunday Times about Russia becoming particularly aggressive on the world stage on the back of hosting major world events including the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, the 2018 uh, World Cup finals and even on the back of a big performance from Russia in 2008 in Beijing where they initially invaded Georgia and also you've got uh, all of the state-sponsored doping on the back of Russia's medals that were won in the Olympics between 2008 and 2016 as well. Back page today of the Irish Daily Mail Abramovich Escape Plan is again featuring the transfer of shares to a charitable trust at Chelsea. Also they've got a very uh, despondent looking Cristiano Ronaldo who hasn't scored in his last six games now for Manchester United. Again United drawing a blank in their draw with Watford which keeps the race for the top four uh, very much alive as we go into the last 12 or 13 games of the season. Nick Harris also has a piece kick the Russians out of the World Cup as sanctions on a sporting scale uh, continue to mount up for Russia since their invasion of Ukraine which include the Formula 1 Grand Prix won't be taking place in Russia this year and the Champions League final was stripped from St. Petersburg and moved to Stade de France in Paris Rom out of town is the back page of the people again focusing on Roman Abramovich and the movement around of those shares uh, they're also uh, taking a look at Manchester City's very controversial win against Everton we'll be talking about the Premier League title race and also Lukaku 
was across a lot of the back pages today. He had the game of seven touches last week against Crystal Palace. Didn't get to play midweek against Lille. And we'll see if he starts in the Carabao Cup final. The one guarantee we know is that Cuevin Kelleher will start for Liverpool. Rom Shell is the back of the Sunday Mirror. Again, a familiar theme with Roman Abramovich and potentially action from the UK government towards him. But it will be individually as opposed to going against Chelsea now that they have moved for a charitable trust model. Keller for Leder is looking at Cuevin Keller starting in the Carabao Cup final this afternoon at half past four. Our live game here on News Talk will be Wolves against West Ham from two o'clock. And then the back of the Sun. Uh, mix of stories, really. They're looking at the GPA on the back of potential integration of the Camogie Association, Ladies Football Association and the GA after it got 90% of backing uh, from delegates at Special Congress. Also, uh, there is backing for a new championship, the Green Proposal, which will come in from 2023. And Neil O'Riordan, you'll see, has got Mac Designs, which is about Mac Hansen here on the back page. And we'll be talking about the rugby with the lads now in a moment. So we've got Bo Keane Tracy and Brendan O'Brien here with me. Lads, how are you getting on? All good. Um, you guys are here before you go to the Aviva Stadium later on. So I think probably starting with the rugby might be the way to go. All expectations would be Ireland are going to win this game. Um, Italy are on a horrific run, going back to that win that they had against Scotland back seven years ago today at this stage. It's been a fairly miserable run. I know Bernard Jackman's been writing about it today as well, that he says the Italian Federation have to take a lot of responsibility. Ron McGarr was saying to us on Friday that Kina, Italy are going to improve. They have to show performances like the under-20 showed against England. But it's a very, very grim reading when you look at Italy's record over the last seven years in particular and those consecutive defeats that they're now on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and even you, like there was so much made of the twenties win over England last or a couple of weeks ago. But you look at what the Irish twenties did to that same Italian team on on Friday night. They absolutely destroyed them. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't quite say it's um, it's a new dawn either because I think we've seen young kind of Italian players breaking through, but it just hasn't quite materialised to the senior team. So yeah, we expecting a big score. Um, Today I actually bumped into one of the players when I was walking into the studio this morning. They're obviously staying nearby in Dublin City and looked, yeah, totally calm. Like so I'd say the players can't wait to, to get it going either. And like you said, one of them, Mac Hansen, is is across the papers today. And he's, I suppose, Brendan, you'll probably agree with me, like from a journalist's point of view, like he's been a breath of fresh air to come in because he's just he's a guy who's been given a second chance, um, really. Um for anyone that doesn't know, he got picked up by Connacht because Andy Friend, the Connacht head coach's son, worked in a bar that Mac Hansen used to drink in. Um, it did, some of the stuff is great in, in the papers today. Um, he was an electrician. He describes himself as, I was, lit- I was literally just terrible at it. They wouldn't let me do any hard jobs at all. I was pretty much just nailing the line that we'd run the wires through. I didn't actually do any electrical work at all in my time as an electrician. <laughs> uh, so he's a really like laid back guy. He's He's obviously come from Australia. His mam, Diana O'Shea, is from Castle Martyr in, in County Cork. So I think it'd be very interesting to see how a guy like him goes in the same back three with James Lowe because they're very, very similar uh, personalities. They both got long flowing, like long, long, long hair, which is a kind of a funny aspect to it as well. But I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of the Ireland team selection today is how that back three goes. And having a guy like Mac Hansen in there, it's just great. Like, it's great on and off the pitch. He also touches on the fact that um, he did a lot of childcare um, when he was in Australia. So this is a guy who was an electrician, not really doing any electrician work, uh, a guy who was minding kids and is now suddenly finding himself uh, starting his third game in a row in the Six Nations for, for Ireland. So um, it's a brilliant story. And like I said, it's covered well across the papers today. It's not quite the career part, Brendan, of many Irish players who go well in school, go into an academy, become a professional, 
international rugby player and then get into the international senior system. This guy has gone a slightly different road here. Absolutely. And you think of how many of the Leinster players are key to the Ireland team. So how many of those have come through the private school system in Dublin and, and the Pale region as well. I love the fact that one of the quotes Mac Hansen says in the paper today is, I didn't wipe any bums. I didn't expect <laughs> to see that when it was opening up, you know, Ireland-Italy preview stuff today. And it is a great story. And you have to say hats off to the identification process. I know Keen touched on how it was a little bit kind of, you know, um, meeting in a bar, like, you know, it could have happened to anybody. But I think one of the one of the lads who writes about it in the papers today said, don't be too fooled by that. Like, Connacht would have done a bit more due diligence. That was probably the key that, that or the, the, the trigger for it. But I think there's a, a part saying about how they had their eye on him for two years or whatever. He'd been in the Australian sentence. And, like, when you step back from it, it's just astonishing that this guy eight months ago, he wasn't even in the country. You know, I mean, you look back at, I think the previous instance I remember of a player like that, he might have been Michael Bent when he was fast forwarded mm. into the squad. Turned out to be a great player for, for Leinster, but it didn't happen for him for Ireland. And when you think back to his first few days in the country, he was pictured with the Hurley. He was kind of, in, nobody meant to set him up for a fall, but it happened. So for this guy to come in and do what he's done is just incredible in the Six Nations. Yeah, and Andy Friend came out with a quote um, a couple of years ago because he like Connacht have to shop in this kind of market. That's not um, that's not you, you know your marquee names. It's just a natural fact of the Connacht's budget. But he said that we have to shop in Aldi compared to others shopping in Brown Thomas. So uh, if this is what they're getting in their dogs of Aldi, then what a signing he's been because he's been like like I said such a breath of fresh air to start three Six Nations games in a row is pretty incredible because I spoke to him at the start of when Ireland were actually training in um in Portugal, he was put up for interview and I was asking him, you know, like what would it mean, you know, to, to get a cap for Ireland? And honestly, his reading of it was, if I get a cap at all in the Six Nations, it would be unbelievable. So this guy did not expect to be to be starting, let alone three games in a row. So it's just a brilliant story and it just shows that... Um, like you said, Connacht did their, their due diligence, but it also shows that Andy, Far- Andy Farrell is a really good identifier of talent as well because he's thrown him straight into the deep end and he's he's thrived really. So um, I'd expect we'd, we'd probably see more of his influence today against an Italian team who should pass up a few opportunities. Yeah, and look, one of the concerns that was there about Mac Hansen was potentially defensively, yeah. but Andy Friend was very defensive of that. He was saying, look, I have no concerns about this guy. He's really good in the air. He has put in huge work on the defensive side of his game since he's arrived in Galway as well. And look, he's been rewarded by starts. Not just typically, if they were going to put him in after having November, Italy would have been the game where you probably give him his first start. Yeah. But fate was placed in him in the first two games against big opposition as well. Yeah, I mean James Lowe's injury opened up the door from you know another great story of a guy coming over from the other side of the world. And and as well as that, we should remember um, Mac Hansen had a minor injury in, in January. And did he miss a couple of games? Mm, back yeah, missed good few. Yeah. I was at the game. He came back. For, I think that was monster in the sports ground mm-hmm. when he was very slow getting back into his own twenty-two. Um, poor clearance kick and, and they coughed up a try and I remember thinking I'd heard so much about this Matt Hansen guy you've seen him on TV and it's the first thing he's done I'm like alright oh, okay but that's literally the only thing I, I can think of that he has done wrong and he was so you know um, rusty at that stage because of the injury um, so it, it's a great story from like and when you think of you mentioned the key and him in one wing James Lowe and the other, like, in terms of, from a purely media point of view, this is brilliant. This is gold. Like, I mean, James Lowe is the best interviewee in, in Irish rugby, possibly in Irish sport. Yeah, he, um, he was up again on Friday yeah. just delivering delivering the gold. Like, yeah. a, I think he was asked about the, the back three and he said something like, oh, it's way better now that Hugo Keenan isn't in it. And he's one of Hugo Keenan's best mates. And he did go on to say, well, Hugo Keenan is actually the brains trust of this yeah. back three. But, like, you know, now that he's there, uh, and he, he slags himself that, you know, 
oh this battery yeah it's got a lot of X Factor but I'm by far the slowest yeah. like and things like that so like you want a bit of, bit of that don't you characters like because mm. like Brendan says like Irish rugby is predominantly comes from the same sort of pathways you know and we all know what those pathways are and sometimes in not every case it's the like, personality kind of like is hidden away because you've been so trained coming up but these two lads coming in from very different environments just they just offer something different on and off the pitch and I think it's telling as well that you see a guy like Johnny Sexton actually say during the week that uh, James Lowe is one of his favourite players to play with. Now, that uh, that goes beyond, I think, his capabilities on the pitch, but it's that buzz. I think Simon Zebo did it for years when he was in the squad. It's that kind of infectious like personality that you bring, and I don't think you can have enough of that, really. And it's probably a bit... In, it's probably a good sign of the Andy Farrell era as well that you have more of these characters because there was everything was a little bit kind of structured Vanilla, like everything, yeah you know everything good was school boys under Schmidt and exactly yeah yeah and that had like I mean I'm very conscious of every time we bring up something like that that it's not a slight on yeah. Joe mm. Schmidt's era because it was incredible but it just got a little bit stale at the end like like a lot of things do like you mentioned Bielsa there like you know it it just happens so um, I think it's it just shows how there's a more relaxed environment because like I would struggle, I don't know if you'd agree with me, Brendan, but would you have seen a back three like this start a Six Nations game under Joe Schmidt? I highly doubt no. it. No, so, no, you couldn't. Mm. There's no way you could. And, and, and the thing about it is, like, I mean, we saw it in November how important James Lowe became to Ireland's attacking game plan and the left foot kicking option is an obvious thing, but he was also given a free roll to get in on the ball, you know, and you saw how well he played against, in particular, in the All Blacks win. Now, Mac Hansen fitted in and is not a like-for-like replacement in that he's not a left-footed kicker, but he did such a good job over the first uh, two games. Wasn't perfect against France, but I'm fascinated to see now today how Mac Hansen goes on the other wing. Will he still have that same kind of free role that James Lowe will have on the left wing? Because if they do, and they're dovetailing off someone like Michael Lowry, who has more than merited his place in the team, then this is one of the most exciting and fun back trees, an Irish back tree I think we've seen in quite a while, and it's great to see them getting a chance. Also in the newspapers today, Rory Keane's got this story on page 72 and 73 of the Irish Daily Mail, is finally we're going to get an update on this much-delayed investigation into what went wrong for the Irish women's rugby team in not qualifying for the World Cup later this year. Yeah, well overdue as well. Um, I'm kind of surprised to see actually it's going to come out tomorrow on a down week, which will be a down week for the Six Nations. I was convinced it was going to come out in the week of the England game when there was so much else going on and hope to kind of exactly because like let's be fair that has happened before, particularly with this uh, with this story. So. Yeah, I suppose it can't come soon enough. Like, I mean, you look at the even the energy uh, All Ireland League finals were on yesterday. It looked like a great occasion, and the fu- the final itself between Railway Union and Black Rock was incredible. So, like this new era, Greg McWilliams, the new head coach, was there. So, like, you want to start this new era particularly because the, the Six Nations is coming up in, in a few weeks as well, but this has been hanging over everything in the background. So the sooner you just kind of get it out and get it over it, I think the better. And it was also interesting that the the final. The qualifier final was on a Friday night, which if Ireland had won, remember back um, last year, if they had won that qualifying tournament with Scotland, beat them in the final, they would have been playing Colombia. Now, Scotland played them on Friday in Dubai and absolutely destroyed them. Um, I think I'm right in saying Colombia had never lost a game, which was just utterly insane because they had clearly never played a team of like half decent, half decent opposition. So Scotland put a big, big score on them and now they're going to the World Cup in New Zealand later this year and Ireland are, are starting from scratch so 
it was just a reminder of how frustrating that was and it's a reminder like you said Rory Keane has the piece in here how you know this this really needs to happen as soon as possible so Irish rugby can move forward because like I said there's a new there's a new coaching staff in there Neve Briggs has come in with with Greg McWilliams but you can't move on until you take the and I was going I was going to actually say Brennan take I, I was going to say the, the 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 ultimate kind of rugby thing take the learnings <laughs> from it but uh, I very very nearly did but I stopped myself but no but, but you've got to You've got to figure out like why why Ireland failed to qualify for World Cup, which just should should not happen. It absolutely should not happen, particularly when you look at the resources and the quality of players that are coming through. So you've got to find out why that happened, and more importantly, making sure that it absolutely doesn't happen again. Because, like I said, you see the occasion that in Donnybrook last night at Energy Park big crowd there people getting behind it and it just shows that if the structures are put in place I think the appetite is there for it to kick this game on Brendan I think there'll probably be a lot of introspection within the RFU after this report as well given that the targets really weren't met in that kind of five year cycle and particularly around the women's game they were spectacularly missed really particularly with missing this World Cup and there probably will have to be a conversation about the way resources are spread out across the sevens programme and across Mm. the fifteens and realistically and to hate to use the word learnings but there's probably a lot that actually has to be taken from this I don't think you hate to Use the word learning. It's, like it's, it's, it's been used yeah. far too much. For you see someone else yawn, you yawn almost <laughs> instinctively afterwards. Yeah, but that's what the players always say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but you're right. I mean, and it's not just um, in terms of being spread too thin on the pitch. It's at administrative levels as well. There should be clearly. Um, a director of women's rugby that is just, that is their brief. There's too much crossover, there's too much grey area. If you had a pie chart of responsibilities with the... Would you have the administrator game, across 15s and 7s and then leave Anthony Eddy to have a more defined role elsewhere? You, you would have to, you'd have to define both of them. Mm. So you'd have to, you'd have, you need a, a central figure on the women's game, but then you have to decide as well, where is the 7s and 15s meshing or where is it not meshing? And they're sticking to the, to the, to the view pre-report coming out that it's not, we're not robbing Peter to pay Paul here. But I mean, you look at the, the experience of the players who are on the pitch in Parma um, in that qualifying tournament, it was players in key positions with a handful of caps mm-hmm. in a World Cup qualifying tournament. That's where we're at. So there has to be honest conversations. And in fairness, stuff we've heard from the RFU in recent months when this was very much front and centre in the headlines doesn't fill me with any great optimism that they will make the right decisions. I hope I'm wrong in that. I think honesty needs to happen. It needs to stop now. Keane's right. When, when you're making fundamental change in an organisation, there's key times you can do it when there's a change of personnel or when something seismic happens. Both of those have happened in Irish women's rugby at the moment. This is the time to do it. And if it's not now, it won't happen. Yeah. Yeah, like, and I think it's just just a, a quick point. Like, I mean, the, the soundings will all hopefully be positive now, building into the Six Nations. But I'm almost certain that we're going to have the same old story that 15 players are going to be playing sevens mm. during the end of Six Nations because they're contracted to sevens, which is an issue as well because. Let's take Stacey Flood, for example, who has become such a key player at out half for Ireland. She's contracted to the Sevens programme. Now, she could be there for the first three Six Nations games. I'm thinking off the top of my head here. But I know, as far as I know, there's a Sevens event at the second half of the Six Nations. So, remember a few, remember a few yeah. years ago, Brendan, yeah. we had this big story, Senna Upu and a few others right. were taken when Ireland were going for the title. So the Sevens team has started the season quite well. Yeah. So, understandably, if you want Bavian Parsons and yeah. you want Stacey Flood, you need them for these big tournaments. And like you said, they, they created history lately in, I think it was... Uh, Seville um, they came second which was an unbelievable achievement but if you're taking Stacey Flood Bavian Parsons these kind of players out of the 15s team 
like I don't know what what hope do you have like you know and that puts like I said Greg McWilliams the head coach on the back foot because you have to plan for some of your best players to, to not be available um, and like I said like imagine that happening in the men's game mm. it just wouldn't happen in the men's mm. game it's not even worth worth imagining it so like Brendan says um, change has to happen and if it doesn't happen now I'd agree but mm. don't know when it will Yeah, uh, Moving across to the football we've got the Carabao Cup final coming on uh, later today uh, where Chelsea are going to play against Liverpool so much intrigue around this um, largely because of Chelsea's situation and the statement they even put out about Ukraine this morning and Roman Vramovic uh, talking about his transfer of his shares but also huge Republic of Ireland interest Brendan coming into mm. this game with Cuevin Keller not a huge amount of Cuevin Keller coverage actually in the papers today maybe that's the case that the Saturdays had taken this up somewhat yesterday yeah, it is. And, and the fact as well that his origin stories and where he's come from and, and where he's at have been very well dealt with um, in previous years because every time he made a, you know, a, de- a debut at Liverpool, then his Ireland debut came along. It has been very well covered. Uh, I know Dan McDonald did a piece in the Indo yesterday, which was very comprehensive and a, a, an enjoyable read as well. So it, it is out there. And I think you pointed out earlier, Will, that a lot of the Red Tops have a picture of Cuivine just to get him in. Yeah. And you, you can understand it. Look, it's a brilliant story. And I mean, when you step back and look at it, it's Ireland's number two goalkeeper playing for Liverpool in a major cup final in England. It's a really good story, like, you know. Um, and you just hope things go well from today. So important, um, Keen, that he gets game time as well. Because, you know, for Ireland, it's very hard to get in ahead of Gavin Bazunu. I often wonder if we go back about 18 months ago when Cuevin Keller was out for the game in Serbia. Mm. He plays, say, he put in a solid performance chances are he's probably still the first choice goalkeeper because the chances he's got in friendly since he's played very well but simply once Bazunu got in after that Travers game in Serbia you couldn't argue with anything that Bazunu has done for the Republic of Ireland since yeah, I have to say, like of the like, I'm I'm really enjoying the kind of the, the buzz around the Irish football team. I was at the last few few games at in, in Dublin as a punter as well, which were just brilliant. But I'm fascinated by by this story. I have to say, the two lads. Um, it's just it's it's so rare to get excited about goalkeepers. Well, I know from my point of view, anyway. Um, but yeah, you look at the, the both of them; they're both just absolutely outstanding. And I agree with what Brendan's saying that, like you know, we all kind of know the backstory. But I'm still a bit surprised that maybe. It wasn't covered more in the papers because it's you can't diminish the achievement of like an, an Irish a young Irish guy starting for Liverpool in I know it's only the, the the Carabao Cup final but it's still a final it's still at Wembley it's still a huge game so I don't think Irish football is at the stage where oh everyone knows you know his story like I I think you should be shouting this from from the rooftops and I'm fascinated to see how the rivalry goes over the next couple of years like is is Bizzunu going to eventually replace Ederson at City like who knows but Pep seems to talk about him really highly and we've all seen how regularly um, Klopp talks about Kelleher so um, you're talking about two of the biggest clubs in the world or two young Irish lads who, who've come through so um, I think it'll be in, like Keller has played so well every time he's he's gotten his chance for Liverpool and like it's a massive show of faith like it's brilliant to see like Klopp like he kind of poo-pooed the idea that um, sorry the Liverpool, Allison. that Alison, sorry, that Alison would come back in, um, which is unbelievable. Like that's what you want to see, and like not to bring it back to rugby, but I will bring it back to rugby. But you look at Joey Carberry this week, you know, and Andy Farrell clearly told him, "You're our man this week." You know, we want you to lead the team, and I see kind of similarities maybe with how Klopp has kind of put his arm around Keller and goes, "No, you're our keeper for the 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 League Cup, and you got us to the final, so it's your your chance to shine." So not to segue this, Keane, but when I think of Joey Carberry on this, if Joey Carberry is a particularly good game against Italy this afternoon, he's kicking is still 100% and he has a very good playmaking game is it not a very strong argument to play Joey Carberry in Twickenham then? 
There absolutely would be, but I couldn't see it happening, if, if I'm being honest, because Johnny Sexton is still Johnny Sexton, um, and you're going to Twickenham with like a Six Nations title on the line. But it's the selection headache you want. And, you know, if, if, if Kelleher plays unbelievably well today, and, you know, he's unlikely to play in Liverpool's next big Champions League game or whatever, league game, whatever it is, but it reinforces the the faith I would say Klopp has in him and I, that's what I mean about Joey Carberry saying I know it's, it's only Italy and all that but if he goes really well and backs up his performance in Paris then Andy Farrell goes okay if I need to call upon this guy in Twickenham Johnny Sexton could get injured early there's far less concerns and I think Klopp is on a similar path with Kelleher that he has ultimate trust in him if he's um, if he's called upon you look you look how quickly he's overtaken Adrian as uh, as Liverpool's second choice keeper so um, yeah I think it's a it's an incredible Irish football story and it's one that probably you know it's one that's probably like signposting the Stephen Kenny era that you know young exciting players like playing in these big games and yeah I think long, long may it continue and like let's keep shouting it from the rooftops yeah plenty of coverage of Ukraine Russia all the kind of sporting implications that we've already heard mentioned at the top, the Champions League final on Friday on the move from St. Petersburg this May to the Stade de France. Uh, there will be no Russian Formula 1 Grand Prix in the calendar this year. Russia's gone from the Eurovision. Uh, they're already talking about you know potentially more sanctions towards Russian clubs over the next while as well. Uh, this is covered in quite a few different places. Uh, David Walsh in the uh, Sunday Times today. You've got Eamon Sweeney on the back page of The Independent as well, who I think kind of sums up a lot of the issues quite well. Uh, the subtitle of his piece is Big Sport on the Side of Bullies and the fact that hosting sporting events oftentimes adds legitimacy to regimes. And in this case, um, he talks a lot about the fact that Vladimir Putin has used hosting sporting events and the mm-hmm. prestige that comes with that, uh, particularly when you look back at uh, recent Champions League finals, uh, the Europa League, uh, you're looking at the Winter Olympics in Sochi. We all remember the state-sponsored doping lads yeah. on the back of that, which was unveiled ahead of 2016. And then after the McLaren report, uh, Russian athletes were still allowed to compete where they did relatively well in 2016 at the Olympics. They hosted the World Cup in 2018 which is where Gianni Infantino got his medal of friendship uh, from the Russian Premier and all in the middle of that in 2014 Russia got into Annex Crimea and they had gone into Georgia uh, back in 2008 not long after the Olympic Games and also in the middle of all this we can't forget the fact that Saudi Arabia is currently bombing Yemen at a time when Saudi Arabia has bought Newcastle United effectively um, through an investment fund they're trying to set up a golf league to try and rival the European and PGA Tours and also we look at issues around the Abu Dhabi regime and there's a certain hollowness as well yesterday when you see Manchester City coming out in Ukraine jerseys when they're you know owned by Abu Dhabi um, sport can't get away from the fact that these regimes have now bought heavily into particularly European sport brand. Absolutely, yeah, and like there's a lot of symbolism about it today and Ollie Holt in, in the Daily Mail asks a very, I think, relevant question and he says, you know, in relation to the Carabao Cup final today, he says, what do Chelsea do now, presumably taking to the pitch at Wembley draped in Ukrainian flags as Everton and Manchester City did at Goodison yesterday? Would it be a little embarrassing given their owner's association with the invader? Do they attempt any show of sympathy for Ukraine's plight? Presumably not. Do they just ignore it? What a shameful, shameful mess. So um, just imagine that image if, if Chelsea do win today and they're going up the steps. Like, what do people think? Like, you're looking at it and you're... It's so hard even now to get your head around it. And the whole issue of sport being, you know, bound to this bad side of human nature. It's, it's, it's laid out in front of me here in front of this and there's so many great lines and so many great ways that, that 
that writers have, have tried to, uh, to portray it. And in Naaman Sweeney's piece, he says basically, we pretended that holding tournaments in such countries could be a force for good. Mm. And we've all learnt that now. You've put it out very well, away at 14 and, and, and now as well. And a great line from Eamon's is, sport spends a lot of time supping with the devil and it doesn't use a long spoon. I mean, that's pretty damning as it is. And I'm just struck by the imagery of it all. Even the front page of the sports section in the Sunday Times, it has the masthead with sport and it has the word toxic underneath it. You could have a colon after sport, sport dot dot toxic. It's just inextricably linked with the whole thing. And, and the whole idea of has sport wound itself too much and have we allowed ourselves to be deceived? Because we all have. We all, I mean, it's human nature. You can't, you can't hold the torch for everything all the time. We all have our own lives to live. But Jonathan Norcroft's piece is very interesting on it. Um, I remember at the time of the 2018 World Cup, he was in um, Russia for the World Cup, obviously, and he did a daily or a part daily diary on it. And I remember enjoying it at the time. It was really good, like, you know, it was a, an insight into the tournament. And any of us who've been to a major tournament, you, you know, especially a football tournament, when you're on the ground, you get absolutely sucked into it. It's impossible to actually explain this to people. I went to the World Cup as a, as a punter in Germany in 2006 with a, a group of friends and we based ourselves in Cologne and we were going to kind of jump around the place but we spent about a week in Cologne, we loved it and then some of the lads said, ah let's do something different so we went to Belgium and Holland for a few days and I said, I don't want to go, stay in Germany, I'm promising you the buzz will be different and as soon as you cross the border and get off the, the train in Amsterdam or wherever it was in Belgium we were, it's different and that's what Jonathan, Jonathan Norcroft is talking about here. We allow ourselves to be lulled into it in the middle of a tournament. Everything's fine. This is a force for good. The people are lovely. They're inviting us into their homes. They're buying us drinks. And he asks the question here about his diary. Reading it back, the dimension on, on you know, the darker side of the building was too, too weak, too thin. Did I, did all of us, whose main focus was the pitch and how nice the Russians were, just add to... Putin's propaganda effort, maybe. There's no maybe about it. Yeah. It, it does, and, and that's what we're learning. There is no getting away from it, but the problem is, and nobody asks the question, uh, because it's an impossible answer, how do we roll back from this? How do we get the genie back out of the bottle? The genie probably is out of the bottle, Keen. When you consider the huge sponsorship and the money that's been slushed into major sporting organisations, like, you can't divorce the fact that we're all extremely excited by the end of the Formula One season this year. But yet it finished around <coughs> the Gulf states and it was a great opportunity for Saudi Arabia to, you know, position itself in the world and for Abu Dhabi to show itself off uh, with the end of the title race. And everyone's talking about the end of it and what's going to happen here. But it's all happened in Abu Dhabi in a shiny stadium that has been artificially constructed to give a certain image out to the world. And as Brendan mentioned, if you go to cover any major sporting event, it's amazing how China were able to put so many rules back in for the Beijing Olympics to stop the smog around the city. So everyone that came in thought that Beijing was absolutely wonderful and there were no problems to be had. And, you know, everything was polished off to one side that were issues within China at the time. Naturally, for those two or three weeks that you're hosting a tournament, you give the best possible image of the state that you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. You, you talk about the genie being out of the bottle. I don't think it's in today's uh, Observer, but in yesterday's Guardian, Barney Rone had a brilliant piece that I'd encourage everyone to read uh, basically saying that it's too late you know and he was saying that you know he was kind of part of it as well that like Brendan says you do get caught up in it but when you allow yourself to to step back and you know you, you I think it was you touched on Newcastle will like it's happening now again you know it's just at the early stages and this is what happened um 
when Abramovich came in and, and bought Chelsea. And I think Brendan is so right to, to point out that the front page of the, the Sunday Times, like sports, toxic, that's not done by mistake. Like that is a powerful, powerful front page with Abramovich's face um, kind of blacked out next to it. Um, and jo- like Jonathan Norcraft's intro for his news piece is like on the face of it, a benefactor handing the enterprise he funds to a charity should be a heartwarming feel-good story but only those living in a parallel universe will inter- in- interpret Roman Abramovich's ruse with Chelsea as a philanthropic act. And that kind of sums it up really because like, you know, we saw we all saw the statement that they released last night. There was no mention of what was going on in, in Russia and Ukraine at the moment. And then this morning, Chelsea put out like was a two a two line statement in, in the afternoon. About forty words, give or take. Yeah. yeah and like and, and I actually thought that, that made them look worse. Um then, you know, they clearly they're, they're the obvious reasons why they didn't address it in the statement last night. But to put it in as an afterthought with like two lines I thought was uh was pretty damning. So um I think, you know, as sports journalists, the three of us, like, I mean, we probably have a tendency, well, I'm sorry, I'll speak for myself, to kind of blow up sports importance because, like, it, you know, it's it certainly, like, dominates my, my agenda anyway. But sport does surely have a role to, to play in this as well. I thought the scenes at um, Goodison Park yesterday, apart from the kind of, you know, bringing out the flags and stuff, but seeing Zinchenko, who I think is the Ukraine captain, isn't he? Yeah. Um, seeing him who... Even the fact that he was on the bench, I mean, you could see that he was in no fit state to play. Um, it was incredibly, incredibly powerful um, that these guys might be paid, you know, like millionaires, whatever, but like they're still human beings at the end of the day and their families um, like back home are caught up in this. So uh, sport does have a role to play. And I thought um, Poland's, you know, stance was like pretty admirable to come out and say that not only are we not going to play Russia whenever it is in a few weeks next month but they actually want to see them banned altogether and there was a there was a rugby match on yesterday um, again going back to rugby but uh, Russia were playing in, in a women's match in rugby yesterday and like when I saw it I was kind of going again this would surely not happen if it was a men's game like why why are Russia like like even for the players point of view um Imagine going out representing your country and hearing your country's national anthem being played while mm. you know what's going on. There's yeah. something really twisted about yeah. that. So, uh, like, sport is it's such a small part of what's going on um, in Ukraine and Russia at the moment, but it has to have a role to play. Um, and David Walsh uh, touches on this, you kind of, you know, the issue with FIFA and, and things like that. And he's touching on Gianni Infantino and he says, Infantino is a Swiss Italian, but also but also a Greek national. He speaks six language languages, but last week, remarkably, he could not find one to make himself sound convincing. And that, I suppose, is the big question here. Like, what are FIFA really going to do? I mean, does anyone have faith in them doing what they should do? I certainly don't. But if sport doesn't, you know, stand up and and make some sort of a stand. And to be fair, lots of people are, but it's the it's the big dogs that you need coming down hard in this. And if Russia were banned from the World Cup, like that has to have like some sort of an effect. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to suddenly stop what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, but it has to ha- it has to have some effect. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I mean, I wouldn't be holding my breath for Russia to be to be kicked out of major competitions. But it's probably what really should happen, shouldn't it? Sometimes it feels like um, 
there's going to be very hard justice when it comes to indiscretions. I even think back about 2016 with the doping, where for a long time after the McLaren report appeared, the IOC were going to ban Russia entirely. That maybe some athletes would be able to prove that they were clean and they'd be able to run under an international flag and that would be about it at the mm-hmm. Olympics. And yes, for the best part, Russia were allowed to compete as normal in 2016. And I felt like there was no great punishment, even at a time, and I know a lot more has probably come out in the two or three years uh, subsequently, but that mm. Russia were state-sponsored doping and using the effective old KGB to discreetly hide what was going on as well since at least the 2008 Olympics, maybe even before then, to make sure they accumulate as many medals as possible. And that was all about international prestige. It was to say, we've won so many gold medals at the Olympics and at the Winter Olympics. And <clears throat> even at that time, they allowed the FIFA World Cup to go ahead in 2018 when they were very aware that there was actually a doping program happening in Russia. So oftentimes the talk is really big, but the action can be quite small. And that, that's yeah. it. It's, it's the drip-drip effect. It's the same as, as the Russian money in London grad or... or London on, or Moscow on Thames or whatever that they call it, it's that drip-drip effect over 10-15 years and once you take one step back or once an infantino or a Sepp Blatter makes a little bit of an excuse or dodges an easy question to condemn something that should be condemned, it, the whole house of cards falls, you're, you're, the, the, the morality of it gets stripped away and stripped away and stripped away and it's every level of sport, I mean we talk about FIFA and the IOC and UEFA, and I think it was the Volleyball Association that came out and said, no, we're still holding our tournament in Russia. You're like, oh my God, you know, it's not just the big the big boys that big boys and big girls get it wrong. It's all levels, and there's a, there's a, a paragraph in Eamon Sweeney's piece in, in the Sindo where uh, he talks about the NBA as well, and he mentions the China, um, Houston Rockets executive, Daryl Morey, who tweeted in support of the Hong Kong democracy movement, and players queued up to criticise him. And Eamon says, 17 leading NBA stars have sponsorship deals with, with Chinese shoe companies linked to forced labour in the Uyghur home province of Xinjiang. So, I mean, like, you could, even if FIFA were doing everything right, even if the NBA was doing everything right, it just, it sinks down and sinks down. And that's what we're saying, like, how does, how does, how does this roll back, you know? It, like, an anarchist would have an answer to this, burn the whole thing down and start again, but that's not going to happen, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting for me as well is, across the coverage on Russia and Ukraine and sport today, is things like that NBA story that I wasn't aware of. I mean, that's shocking when you think of, how can anybody come out and condemn what that NBA executive said? Like, I mean, how is that humanly possible? And Jonathan Norcroft's piece again, we know about stadium workers issue in Qatar for the World Cup and that's been front and centre. Um, but he talks about um, how in 2017 the campaigning Norwegian football magazine Josie Marr ran a gruelling and remarkably bravely researched piece called The Slaves of St. Petersburg and that detailed use of migrant workers many from North Korea to build the World Cup stadiums in Russia. I hadn't a clue about that. No, was unaware until this You know, week, yeah. I mean, and that's... The papers today and yesterday and all week, even, just, even if you just limit yourself to sports pages, the amount of little nuggets and details that are coming out that just leave you despairing, and it's all this information, and we talk about this with social media and all the, the media we have and the TV channels and radio stations, it just feels overwhelming. And it is hard, isn't it, to kind of step back and go, where does it end? Where do we get out of this? Like, you know, I mean, it's like the Manchester United situation, the Glazers and the new club that arose from the ashes. That seems very attractive now, you know, just, uh, I think I'll go and I'll watch Division 4 rugby for a while. And, it's also, before know. I move off this, Keen, it's very difficult for an actual sports fan. I remember saying mm. this on this very show when we spoke about Newcastle. You're a Newcastle fan, say, for your entire life. You have 
gone through the Mike Ashley year that's been pretty painful in a very different way and then you hear the club is going to be sold to a Saudi investment fund you might more realistically not be a fan of the fact that the Saudi Arabian regime are effectively coming in to bankroll your club and use it as a plaything. But do you just abandon your club at that mm. point? Like if you're, do you think Spartak Moscow should be kicked out of the Europa League because of the fact that mm. Russia had been aggressive in Ukraine? It's a really, really, really difficult one to hold a very strong moral position and also just look at sport for sport's sake. Yeah, I couldn't agree more actually. I, I've had similar thoughts. I think any rational kind of Newcastle fan or City fan, whoever it may be, w- would think the same way. But for those who say like, oh, you know, you, you can't support that club, it's kind of easy for, for us to say when we're watching from afar, but if you're from down the road from St. James's Park and it's all you've ever known and your dad and your granddad, like every, you went to the games with all of them or, you know, your mom, whoever it may be, it's it's not as easy to, to turn your back on that. Like, I mean, you think about it that like, you know, if like I grew up going to, to Munster rugby matches, like in a parallel universe if Munster got bought out by something like that would you still be able to support them and you wouldn't be able to support what they stand for but they're still part of kind of who you are so I think we're a bit detached from that like living in Ireland and you know not like really feeling it on the ground but um, it's the people who get caught up in this like I mean David Walsh is writing again about the, the 15 year old like skater in the Winter Olympics um, Camilla Veliev uh, Veliev sorry that's a hard name to pronounce Um <laughs> But like a 15 year old and like that was like I don't know how you guys felt like but watching her doing her her last routine when she knew it was up was like tragic like mm. really 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 tough to watch and this is a 15 year old who you'd imagine knew no better than than what she was doing she's been she's doing what um what older people who should know better are doing so um it's it, it just it, it extends so far beyond sport like I said but sport has to has to be seen to do something we've seen it in the arts as well even in in dublin like you know um ballets and things like that operas are are, are being cancelled and it may seem like small beer in the grand scheme of things and it absolutely is but if you don't be seen to make in a stand you just go on with it even like spartak moscow i'm thinking right saying we're playing in the europa league on thursday yeah. night weren't like yeah like that, that like i said about the women's rugby game going ahead that's so wrong as well and you'd love to know what the players kind of felt like you know I mean and obviously they'd have a lot of players who wouldn't be Russian either like going out representing a team from Moscow um, in a European competition it's I don't know it's it's the kind of thing that like I always feel this when we're living through big sort of historical things that you have to peel yourself back and remind yourself of other things that you know you've done so like I, I like I visited Auschwitz when I was uh, a few years ago when I was younger and you, when you go to somewhere like that you're just like you're brought back to the time you're like how could it ever have been that bad but when something like this is going on now like I'm sure you guys have seen like the, the images of the kids like so many kids and fathers waving goodbye to their daughters putting them on buses like it's happening now and that's why I think it's important to, to kind of peel yourself back and realise that this isn't some kind of thing that we're watching from years ago. It's happening now and so many like innocent people are, are being caught up in it. Um and yeah, it's just horrible. Like there's some of the some of the pictures you, you see, like I mean, um I saw the kids were like down in a bunker in a mm-hmm. school and at the BBC did a really good report during the week and I had never thought about what packing to the rafters that saying meant and I probably use it all the time. But it was used in that report and you see kids literally packed to the rafters in a tiny room that you could hardly breathe in. And like that to me, like just really brought it home that like this is 
just so so shocking um but like i said sport has to be seen to to do something but whether you have the faith in the people who should be making the decisions is another thing i, I think i think that's a good point and it just struck me when you were talking about it if you go back to the apartheid regime in south africa and you've i've read and heard people talk about it for years people who were directly impacted by apartheid in south africa there was a piece on one of the papers during the week on it as well i can't remember who it was saying all those years, the economic sanctions against South Africa, mm, sporting, South, sporting sanctions, they really made us feel like the world was with us. Mm. It was such a visible thing. If you have an economic sanction on the SWIFT payment scheme or whatever, brilliant, absolutely important, but your ordinary person in Ukraine will not see that. And we're all on social media, and I've been struck by the amount of people, Ukrainian people, just saying, you know, don't feel like... Um, having a Ukrainian flag on your, your Twitter is something to be mocked or whatever. Every little bit helps. So a sport, by some miracle, could get its act together and say, right, no World Cup for Russia, you're out of the Olympics, Spartak Moscow gone, Russian women, you're not going to go to England. That would have an effect. It wouldn't stop the war, but it would be a huge demonstration of solidarity with Ukraine with what's going on. So that's going back to what I said earlier oh it's so overwhelming we, what can we do stuff can be done and to be fair they've already taken the Champions League final which yeah. is accredited and the Russian Grand Prix especially when Gazprom are sponsoring yeah. the yeah. Champions League that was yeah. a big move and, and then look, who's it Schalke have taken them off their, mm. yeah, their jersey but I suppose the bigger question there is are they still going to take their money you know it's all well and good taking the, it off the jersey and oh you look great but it's the money that you know if where it's coming from. So you'd love to know where Schalke is still going to be bankrolled by this. So, um, like Brendan says, there there are things you can do, and it has to have some sort of an impact. I think in mm. in the long run, even if it doesn't stop it now. Yeah, for any YouTube comments or for texts that are coming in currently in five three one zero six about you know stay away from it, stay in your own lane about sport. Like Vitaly Klitschko is currently yeah. in the middle of fighting this in Ukraine, one of the best heavyweight boxers of all time. And all you have to do is look at some of the Olympic videos over the last six or eight years, and you will see Putin and Thomas Bach actually clinking uh, champagne glasses together when you see how cosy relationship there was uh, between Russia and the IOC over the last while, uh, particularly given they hosted uh, the 2014 Winter Olympic Games. Moving away from that, there's plenty of uh, other interesting bits and pieces in the papers today, uh, lads. We might move on uh, to Paul Kimmage's second part. Uh, the truth is out there is the subtitle for this one it's Paul Kimmage's investigation into what he's calling horse racing's dirty secrets and Keen, if we look at this one in the Sunday Independent today um, you know, week one had a real focus on the information that was potentially there that could be passed on to the Irish horse racing bodies today's piece is really about a star witness around the case is where we pick it up in part two yeah, this, there's a lot in this. Well, it's like um, like a, a mini book. It's like the, the level of detail is incredible that that Paul has gone into. I suppose and no surprise when you see it. it's a, it's a two part by by Paul Kimmage. Yeah, look, there's a lot. I think of still un, unanswered questions. Um, Anna Wilson, isn't it? Is the name that's given, which the name that's being used to protect the identity exactly, of the witness. Yeah, and, look. To me, it it reads like almost um, like a, a movie or or a Netflix show because there is just so much depth in it, and you know she'd obviously this Anna Wilson person had agreed to to give evidence and then seemingly got cold feet when it came to it, but you're kind of left, well, certainly my reading of it is, you know, you're, you're kind of left wondering, well, how was she put into Stephen, or why was she put into Stephen Mahan's yard in the first place? And a few days later, she provided uh, photos and evidence for, for this investigation who who, ca- who came to the yard. So, um, I don't know, I think it's it, it's left up to your own kind of reading of it, but, 
you know, I think there's questions to be asked where was she put there? Was she put there on purpose to, to try and get some information? Reading between the lines, that's the feeling I definitely get. That's certainly what I got, yeah. That she's gone, made the trip on a daily basis initially mm-hmm. to the yard in Galway uh, to work with Stephen Mann, said that she had previously ridden him on the horses that were at his yard. It seems from her back and forth conversations that she was very concerned about the welfare of some of the horses there, was concerned that some of them were potentially being either doped or mistreated, and therefore she had gone along to get some evidence, which she had been asked to do, and then gets cold feet right up to, just basically right before she is due to give evidence and also, um, I suppose fair to say, some pictures, I think an audio recording and a video recording were going to be handed over to the IHRB just before the hearing, and then she gets cold feet. It all sounds very convenient, doesn't it, that she kind of just rocks up and wants to get involved because she she wants to, to, to get, be involved with this horse. Um, there's some heavy-duty stuff in this. I mean, the reason she got cold feet is that she cites um, her mental health, which is obviously very, very serious. And she, uh, she mentions, in the, er, it's mentioned in the piece that she had issues with self-harm for a long time and the past 10 days, you know, had really brought that back up. And like I said, there, there's a line in this which really struck me from um, Dr. Lynn Hillier, like, you know, so um, Anna Wilson is obviously is, is staying in an, an apartment on the yard um, of Stephen Mahan and, you know, it's kind of getting to the crunch now where she's gathered the evidence and she's starting to get cold feet and Hillier sends her, I think it's a text message saying, wedge a chair under the door as well, uh, liking the sound of everything else, which refers to she had snacks and was going to watch Netflix. But wedge a chair under the door was to to protect yourself from Mm. maybe what had happened. So um, it's very, very serious uh, stuff, like away from the kind of the the bigger picture of this whole thing. You had this like girl who uh, she said she she was she was fearful, but that she was happy to stay there because it was for the the love of the horses that she didn't want to see the horses um, not being cared for properly. So um, a huge level of detail that really like just takes to some of it takes your breath away really doesn't it yeah and like <laughs> just to say, state the obvious the actual size of the piece it's four full pages in, in the Sunday Independent that's on the back of everything that was I think there I counted the online edition it's nearly 8,000 words it's just a today, substantial piece yeah just for today's just part today. two yeah. so probably another four or five last week easily yeah. easily yeah. so the sheer size of it and, and I think it's important to point out that obvious you put in this week and, and last week and the amount of factual evidence, testimony um, that Paul has put together, it's, it's like I have lines of biro across everything mm-hmm. here, like I haven't done since I was in college. Um, and I'm glad I was in college 10 years ago again because it actually gave me a little bit of understanding how to do it. But just to actually point out a couple of the things that, he, that, that are included in it, there is a letter from um, Anna Wilson's solicitor. Who appears to be her dad as well. Am I right in reading it that way, or is it just a solicitor on behalf of her dad, possibly? Uh, by, on behalf, behalf of yeah. from Anna Wilson's father. There's the entire Anna Wilson story, so as Keen talked about how she ended up in the yard. There is follow-on reports from the Racing Post and Irish Times last Monday on the back of Paul's first piece. There's an email to Alan English from an, un- an unidentified... Um, person in racing saying it's backing up a lot of the backing claims up from last a lot week. of the claims yeah. um, you have a lot of information on the hearing into Stephen Madden's case with the IHRB we're not even halfway there yet I know. I'm just listening, I'm just <laughs> yeah. listening what he's done you're into part 5 of 9 here I think hearing yeah. detail you have a detail on the raid and the condition of Jeffrey's girl which is one of the horses mm-hmm. key to it you have a lot of the exchanges between um, um Lynn Hillier and the IHRB and the, the witness Anna Wilson, a lot of verbatim texts that Keane has referenced. 
you have um, stuff on the suspension of Stephen Mahon on the back of the perceived state of his horses. You have more um, communications between um, Hillier and Wilson. We're nearly there. That's nearly half a page. Then you have a letter from Clean Guy, IHRB head of legal, Stephen Mann's solicitor. And at the end of it then, you have Tom Doran, who's the owner of Jeffrey's Girl, who in an email um, is basically saying, it is my absolute belief that the IHRB have shamefully exploited the tragic events surrounding Jeffrey's Girl to malign and attempt to ruin Stephen Mann's career as a trainer of racehorses. That is amazing stuff to see in print. It's yeah. absolute, and, and just finally on that, just like in all, the, in all the words Paul has had, what popped into my mind at the end of it was the heading on last week's one, which was Paul Kimmage investigates Irish horse racing's dirty secrets. This is incredible stuff that we very rarely see. Mm. And that's all, all that Paul has put together from this one side of the story. And I'll draw your attention then to the first page of it today which is the last column, just ahead above the heading two. On Friday, Clean a guy who is currently the IHRB's interim CEO um, said that they have clear evidence which refutes the allegations in the email from um, Stephen Madden's solicitor. And then, here's the one I want to point out. She added that the IHRB will not comment on any aspect of the specific investigation. So we've spoken about Chelsea and their, their 40 word statements this morning. So here's the IHRB. It's not even an investigation that's currently going, mm. which a lot of sports organisations can Won't use. comment until there's actually... This has to be let run. Um, we see with the, the IRFU talking about the women's uh, strategic report. We're not going to say that and let it run its course. This has run its course. It's done. This guy was given his suspension, this trainer. And all we have from the IHRB is we will not comment on any aspect of the specific investigation. And I think it's fair to say with what we've seen this week and last week, we deserve more from the IHRB in this. Something I found quite interesting, actually, my highlighter ended up hitting was in section three for anyone who's reading the piece later on. It's actually the anonymous email which was sent in to Alan English of The Independent. And it was a claim made towards the end of it where this person had said that she previously worked in a yard and that she had passed information on to the IHRB and had felt that her whistleblowing had not actually been properly followed up on, which, you know, reflects back on the piece last week where, you know, Stephen Mann, who has been disgraced as a trainer and who has currently had his licence taken away, has said that yeah. he has information that could potentially implicate other trainers as well. This raises a real question for the IHRB further down the track about how these complaints are dealt with. Yeah. And they have said in their statements that they swiftly move in and that there's any concerns about duty of care, they step in. But there are plenty of claims within these 8,000 words today that that's not the case. And I'm sure that's going to be part of part number three when we come around to next week as well. Yeah. Like, what I wonder is, like, I'm not a, a, a horse racing fan whatever like you know I wouldn't be like following it but obviously everyone has probably been with a passing interest in sport it's been great by this but like has this story like made a splash like elsewhere or, like Paul is obviously incredible detail and I'm very conscious of the fact that it's a legal quagmire for people to be going after but I'm just curious about other racing types like have they actually gone now on the back of this the I racing post I think I think it's Jim Bulger interview went supernova this hasn't yeah. quite gone as much yeah. which is surprising really when you look at now obviously the piece is only in today's paper but I'll be interested to see the coverage now during the week of like are other people going to get on the back of this because um, like Brendan like outlined really well there like the level of detail I think Another thing worth mentioning as well is um, the pictures. Um, and I thought the same last week. Last week we had the picture of Stephen Mann smoking the cigarette right next to the horse. Um, this one, the headline is, the truth is out there. And um, the pictures of Stephen Mann behind bars. 
um, which is it's as symbolic as it gets really it's, it's bluntly extre- symbolic it's extremely powerful and we talked about the front page of the Sunday Times and I'm always fascinated having you know worked uh, on the, the Irish Independent sports desk like this stuff doesn't happen by accident like there is so much time there is so much effort put into how this looks and to get a picture like that of a guy who's obviously a whistleblower behind bars is just incredibly powerful and doesn't happen by accident. That's that's down to like just really, really good design. Brendan, you said you've kind of started doing a few shifts, but I'm sure you'd agree like that. Like it ties the piece together so yeah. well, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, like the, the headline last week, and you, you've said it all. I mean, that just draws you in straight away. The truth is out there. If you knew nothing about it, if you didn't see last week's, and you were flicking through the paper and you saw that image of a guy behind bars and the truth is out there, even if you didn't see Paul Kimmage's byline under it, you'd be like, wow, that's that's pretty interesting. It's the benefit of print as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I got up early this morning and Same. I got slightly ahead, yeah. so I had a quick look at the online edition of yeah. this and it actually stands out much better. There is now almost a Paul Kimmage formula for these stories, which is a good attention-grabbing picture on page number one. You get the scene set and then you get kind of parts two to seven in between with the inset photographs that generally give you a little bit of the background as well, which you just don't get when those seven images are collated at the top of an online article. Absolutely. Like a newspaper, you know, mm. that's, the, that's the thing, you know, like it, it, the, the old cliche, but, uh, and the, the one last week was the same, because like even now I can remember it, it was him smoking a cigarette right next to the horse and it was extremely powerful as well. So uh, I always think these things are, are worth pointing out because um, obviously Paul has done all the legwork, but I mean, journalists, are fo- our photographers are also, you know, technically journalists as well and they really help tie the piece together. And I couldn't agree with you more, Will, and, and that does happen so often. I know it myself, like from from reading the the online the online version, you don't get the same. It, it doesn't you, it doesn't have the same kind of um, impact. And even if you were reading the the newspaper online, you would get that. But there is nothing like kind of turning the page of a newspaper. Um, and it does go from like in the in the Sunday Independent, it goes from GA straight into this, and you're kind of like, whoa, okay. So it really does stop you in your tracks. And then you said about the the hour it will take to to read the piece and actually get your head around it and it's just like I said some of it uh, takes your breath away really it's yeah. just phenomenal detail just a few minutes uh, to have a look at some of the other stories that are there uh, Brendan I was surprised by the amount of Dublin coverage that was there I'm not yeah. sure if this was uh, yeah. a, a few journalists ahead of Sunday licking their lips about uh, Dublin's trip to play against Kildare and yeah. maybe getting sucked into a relegation battle but a lot of different uh, stories across the papers today we kind of marked them down earlier so Colin O'Rourke yeah. is saying it's a attitude issue uh, Shane McGrath's got a piece uh, examining where it went wrong and what teams are going to fill the void if Dublin uh, yeah. do start to fall down the ladder Eamon Fitzmaurice has been writing about the kick out strategy with Dublin how that's changed without Stephen Cluxton Malachy Clerkin talking about the longer ball causing problems for Dublin in the first three games it seems that everyone has a, a different take on what the actual reason for the Empire's fall is. It, it, it really does, and it, it, it has been absolutely fascinating. Christy O'Connor as well had a very in-depth piece um, talking about, he, he mentioned unforced errors, how they're predictable, poor decisions up front, lack of defensive shape or structure. Uh, I think you've covered everybody else there as well. Malachy's was very interesting yesterday in the Times. He did a very kind of stats-based, well, not stats-based, but he, he drew in stats, but it was a very forensic look at Dublin's use of the long ball and he mentioned was it Brian Howard or something at one point in one of the games where he's in the full back or half back line and he literally got the ball and he walloped it straight up the field to a, a, a clump of players, something like four Mayo players and three Dublin players 
and he said that would have a hundred times out of a hundred under Jim Gavin that would not have happened the Reen O'Neill goal for Armagh was yeah, under Reen exactly. where Dublin would never have forced the agenda that they would have recycled and went Absolutely, back and kept players yeah. behind the ball they actually left themselves in a position where they could be turned over everything is so on Jim Gavin like with Dublin and that's and that it's reflected in you know Malachy's piece was very very you know zoomed in and then you mentioned Shane and Christy have had a, maybe a more wider angle look at it but <clears throat> They all have different angles on it. They all have different takes on it. And, and that's the really fascinating thing about it. Nobody has a definitive answer on why it is that Dublin are in decline. So we've gone from a, a situation not too long ago where Dublin are going to be perennial All-Ireland champions and the rest of us are doomed. Is there a few cracks, a couple of retirements? Okay, they've lost in All-Ireland. Now they're in, in deep doo-doo. They could actually get relegated to Division 2. They go down to... Newbridge now, I think, I think I was looking at it during the week, I think 1995 was the last time they were in Newbridge. Where Glenroy was playing, I think. Yeah, yeah, time, and yeah. I read the reports about it, and by God, if, if, if the Lily Whites, Lily Whites win it today, uh, I live in Nace, I might go to Newbridge for a few <coughs> points after the game in the Aviva, like, it's going to be a good old night. So, it's just incredible, and, and just in, in, in a sense of how we analyse sport and how we analyse teams and everything, it's a fascinating look for anybody who has a couple of papers out there or access to them online. Read them all and it just does show that there's really no wrong answer in sport analysis. Like You can have whatever you like yourself and you can say this is right, this is wrong, but if you're Desi Farrell and you're sitting in that dressing room, you, you know, if you're a Dublin supporter, you'd like to think Desi is sticking to this, he's going to do this, that's Malachy's take, he's sticking to this, we're going to go through it, it's growing pains, etc. But you'd have to think he's sitting there thinking, my God, like, how do I pull this all together, you know? Sands a timer against us here slightly, so I would recommend having a look at Michael Clifford's piece as well about the structures and what was voted in at Congress. I'm going to give you keen the last shout on a story I thought was quite interesting is Dermot Galise's piece on the many faces of Phil Mickelson, who's had quite the week. Um, <laughs> Considering that it all kind of blew up from last week, uh, Rory McIlroy was very strong against him. A lot of his sponsors have either paused or pulled out. There's no question marks over whether Augusta National will actually invite him to play at the Masters this year if he's considered a rebel from the PGA Tour. Phil says he's going to take a bit of time himself. Uh, Galise outlines this pretty well today. Yeah, it's it's very good. Like I've been gripped by this story, I have to say. I'm... Um Secretly, a bit of a golf nerd, which Brendan uh, found hard to believe earlier. Um, you get a free subscription to Golf Weekly for a minute. Yeah, will you sort me out? Yeah, Nathan, will surely sort me out. I know. So, yeah, like I do. Um, I, I have to say, like. I've always found Phil Mickelson like really interesting because he was always kind of like the total opposite to Tiger Woods and like when, when I was growing up like I just couldn't get enough of watching Tiger Woods uh, still, still don't like if, if he if he's able to make a comeback but um, yeah like just fascinated even from a journalistic point of view about how the the off the record thing with Alan Shipnut kind of played out and like it's gripped me so much that like I the second I heard it I pre-ordered his uh, his book that is coming out in May like I genuinely cannot wait to read it um, I'm sure that he's probably given the best bit away already but yeah Dermot Gleese it's an interesting piece because he started out by saying Phil has merged as a fundamentally decent man with extraordinary ca capacity for making enemies so he sort of says like he's a good guy but myself and Brendan were talking about this before he just drops in like about four or five small stories but each one of them are absolutely like incredible and like I wouldn't claim to know the, the backstory of Phil Mickelson and that's why I'm really looking forward to reading the book but the way he drops these stories in are just like remarkable really I'll just give you an example of one of them really quickly Will um 
In a trial that unfolded in a Manhattan clubhouse, Mickelson was implicated in a three-way insider trading scandal that ended with two other principals facing many years in prison. Mickelson's fate, he just walked away and didn't even have to testify. So um, he's a really fascinating character. Obviously, his comments were just bizarre, whether they were on or off the record, and he's made a yeah. rod. If you are sitting down with a journalist who's writing your book, everything's on the record. Mm. Yeah, like, and I know this, this has been said, like, by a lot of times, but he does try to be this, the smartest guy in the room, and that's always been kind of his persona, but obviously it's caught up with him now, and I think it's interesting, you know, that he's taken some time out to think about himself, but you'd love to know, is it enforced, you know? Um, I don't know if that will ever come out, but... I'm not um, sure how popular he'd be in the locker room. He's trying to, he's trying to make the argument fill himself. I'm only pushing the agenda on yeah. this golf league because I want the PGA Tour to be better. But I wonder what the feeling will be in the locker room if Phil Mixon walks in beside you right now. Yeah, and I think it was telling that you have like this, Phil is definitely kind of the the, the old brigade, but it was so telling that led by Rory McIlroy, who you touching it there, he absolutely savaged him, to be fair, yeah. like absolutely destroyed him. And McIlroy is this kind of the beacon of the the new kind of the, the, the new age golfers. And it was telling that you had like the likes of John Ram and... Dustin Johnson who had kind of been flirting with it as well for a while all came out in their support of the PGA Tour so I think once you had them I think was it, it was Bryson DeChambeau wasn't it was kind of left with Phil and I doubt Bryson DeChambeau was the most popular guy in the in the locker room either though even though I think he's he's absolutely brilliant for, for the game so um, yeah look he's made a rod for his own back uh, Dermot Lees puts together really well and if anything probably um, makes me look forward to Alan Shipnock's book even yeah. more if I'm being honest Maybe Phil Mixon will think in my early 50s I was probably coming towards <laughs> the end of my career anyway but let's see where he's mm -hmm. at where uh, quite a few of those companies who are bankrolling him have now left him as well that is our pay-per-view thanks a lot for watching along if you missed any of it you can watch it back on Off The Balls YouTube or of course you can go to the podcast and get the Sunday pay-per-review on the OTB Sports app